it was, you know, Matt asking me to come, uh, to be here. He said I had about two hours to preach. This was a Baptist church. I'm from the South. Baptist can mean a lot of different things. Uh, so you got a problem with it, take it up with the guy leaving. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> or don't invite me back next week. Uh, either one. But it's really good to be here. Uh, I count it a privilege to get to open the word with you. And when I get an opportunity to do that, I get to teach several times a week and working with FCA. But when I get an opportunity like this, I just say, Lord, what do you want to, what do you want to do? And it's ultimately usually what he's doing in my life. And I've been on a journey of really just digging into the Gospels and re-looking at the life of Jesus. We I think we spent a lot of time teaching on how to live for him and what does our life look like as followers of Jesus. But what did he do when he lived? And I've been on this journey of looking at that, and um, I've been deeply encouraged. Um, to be honest, I've been deeply troubled at times as I read his call on his people. Uh, and I'll speak for myself, and I look at his call to my life and um, how different my life often looks than what it looked like to follow him. And my prayer this morning and for next week as well is we're going to be looking at this idea of the, the upside-down kingdom. As, I, as I've studied the text for years now, and um, I'm always amazed that Jesus' kingdom does not operate the way our flesh desires or the way that the world does. I mean, and yet we still try to put Jesus in our box to operate the way that we would and the way that the world would. And um, I'm deeply compelled in the American church that we have tried to operate um, more like institutions than we have operated as an organism that he has called us by name and drawn us to be a people set apart. Um, not so that we can look better than other people, but set apart to love in an extravagant way, the way that he did. And um, my prayer as we look at this idea of what is his kingdom really about, I pray that we would be deeply encouraged, um, but I also pray that we would be um, um, reflective at how our lives um, may need to, uh, to line up more with that. And my ultimate desire is that his church... Um, would rise up in our communities and have a heart for the people that he had a heart for. And that we would um, not be stagnant as his people, we would not be complacent, but we would be a people drawn together by a radical, loving God that would go out into a community and radically displace that. And um, so I'm going to pray. And then we're going we're gonna to dig in. And the next two, today, we're going to look at Luke 14. Next week, we'll look at Luke 15. But let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. How humbling it is. Um, man, I know my life. To think that you would allow me an opportunity to stand before people and talk about you is the craziest idea ever. But Lord, I praise you that your way is through the broken. Your way is through the needy, and our boast is in our weakness and not in our strength. And so, God, as we come together as weak, hurting, broken people who have been radically transformed by your grace, I pray that you would speak to us and that you would transform our hearts, that we would know you more deeply, that we would experience you more fully, and that we would serve you completely. Be lifted up in this time. Would you teach us your word by the power 
of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as we, before I get into the beginning of Luke 14, I'd like to take an opportunity to read Luke 14, 25 through 33, and it's going to kind of be a pivot. It's the pivoting between chapter 14 and chapter 15, but I think it is ultimately um, these significant verses that allow us uh, to go and do the very things in which Luke 14 and Luke 15 teach us, and, um, and I think we can get to the heart of what it means to really be a disciple of Jesus. It says in verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And you read those words and you go, what does it really mean to follow him? Does it mean you're supposed to hate the people closest to you? No, I don't think that's really what he's trying to teach us. But what is he telling us? That we should be so captivated. The starting place of following Jesus is to bear your own cross and abandon all to follow your first love. Remember in Revelation, what was his indictment on one of the churches? You've done all these great things for me. And he said, but you've done one thing. You've forgotten your first love. The life of following Jesus is one that is compelled by knowing him and experiencing his greatness. And the hard sayings of Jesus of like he wants you to lay down everything, bear a cross. Like what does that mean? Like he wants you to go walk around town with a cross on your back or he wants you to literally die maybe. Uh, but what is he ultimately saying is he wants you to die so that he can live. The power of the, of the life of Jesus in, in following him is not what we can do for him, but it's about how we can lay down our life and the power of the spirit within us can do his ministry. That's why he said greater works you will do than me. Did he mean like we're going to be better than him? No, he's saying I'm about to displace my presence and my spirit and my power into a people. And they're going to go all over the world. And I know there's some missionaries in here. I got to talk to Mr. Ralph who's been in Brazil. We got Indonesia back here. I mean, we've got it all over. But he is going to displace his presence in us. And he is going to send us out because we've denied ourselves. And he's going to send us all over the world to proclaim this upside down kingdom. Because you've got to understand in their times... They had a king, they had a, they had a kingdom, and it was the Romans, and they crushed everybody. And what is he saying? And then you know what? Why were the disciples always mad at Jesus? Because they wanted him to come take over. Go to, go to battle against Rome. Let's take let's do a physical war. He's like, my kingdom, it's not that way. And what he's doing in our lives, is he wants us to be so compelled. There was many who wanted his healing, wanted his nice little words, 
but they weren't compelled to lay it all down and to follow him. And you go, man, that's burdensome. I don't know. Is it? How many of you are married in here? Don't say it's burdensome. She'll slap you. But, uh, but what do you do when you get married? You say, I'm laying down my rights to pursue anything else because I've become so captivated by one that I want to commit my life through thick and thin, through good times and hard times, through health and through sickness. I'm going to commit my life to love and to serve my spouse. Why? Because of the draw of the relationship. Because of the love that you've received in that, hopefully. And that's the journey of following Jesus. My wife's incredible. She's beautiful. She is so gifted, but she fails in comparison to Jesus. How much more should we lay down our lives to follow him? And yes, I fell way more in comparison to Jesus as well. And so the journey of the upside-down kingdom is one that we have been so radically drawn to this greatness of who he is. Not that we have anything to bring to the table. And look, I grew up in church, and I think that's a huge issue because I was taught to be a good little boy. And sadly, I felt like the, the, the religion of good works to earn his favor was the one that I followed for many, many years. And I think what he wants all of us to do is to come to grips that we have nothing to bring to him. Yet that is the most compelling thing about him. And so I want to encourage you that none of what we study the next two weeks is the way of the flesh or the world. It is nothing short of impossible aside from being so captivated by Jesus and so transformed by his spirit that we would bear our own cross and renounce all to follow him and be his disciples. What are we going to be captivated by? <laughs> his unfathomable, undeserved, and unearned love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, his nearness, his care, go on and on. For who? For the broken, hurting, desperate sinners like you and me. Knowing Jesus, being so taken back by his greatness, is the starting and ending place of following him. And I think where he would want us to start is not feeling so terrible about ourselves, but that's not the point, but to realize that we don't have anything to bring, yet he calls us friend. And I pray that today as we learn more about him, we'd be drawn into this friend relationship that does cost. Following Jesus, it does cost you. It costs you everything. Um, contrary to a lot of teaching in today's culture, um, it costs you everything. And, uh, but it, it gives you everything. And so let's take a look and let's read Luke 14, 1 through 24. We're going to look at one story, two parables. I got two points, and that's it. Um, we're going to be looking at the first point, if you take notes, is uh, religion and self-righteousness leads to blind elitism. I'll say it one more time. Religion self or slash self-righteousness leads to blind elitism. And the second point would be the way of Jesus leads to humble seeing. The way of Jesus leads to humble seeing. 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy or edema or swelling. Uh, for those of you who've never heard, I, I had to look that up, I'll be honest. Uh, but the swelling, so you in between the skin and... Um, 
And so he would be very puffed up. So this is, they, this, this person shows up, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. I mean, it's important to say what? They were watching him carefully. You notice that? These were the, the religious people, the, 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 the good guys. They were watching him carefully. And then this guy comes in. I mean, I think it's important, like, especially for you young people, I want to encourage you, like, sometimes it's like the Bible's boring. No, it's not. Read it for what it really says. This is what's happened. Let me give you a picture. They're in the temple. It's Sabbath day. It's the day of rest. It's, 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 it's the big day, okay, for the religious. This, guy walk, this person walks in that, that has this uh, health issue, and they're all watching him carefully. What's he going to do? Look, you got to understand, Jesus constantly healed on the Sabbath. How many stories are there about him healing on the Sabbath? What was he doing? He was stirring. The, he was stirring stuff. Do you think he cared about the Sabbath? Yes, but what do you think he cared about? The heart behind observing the Sabbath. And so this is what he does. This person walks in. Imagine you're sitting there. He walks in, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, and he said, "This is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not?" <laughs> He's stirring it. He knows what they teach. He knows how burdensome they've been upon the people. Is it, good? Is it okay to do something good? This is what he said. But what was their answer? They remained silent because they didn't have an answer. Uh, then he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. The first point under the first heading, religion slash self-righteousness leads to blind elitism. Um, the first thing you see is self-righteous legalism. It blinds you. Think about, think about Jesus who gave his life constantly to other people, who cared for the people, and we'll talk about this more, the outcast throughout culture, like, these people that had these diseases would be viewed as there was something, like God was mad at them. There was something wrong with them. What sin caused this? And this person is coming in, and instead of saying, man, we have one here who can set you free from this, they were watching him carefully to see if he would actually heal this person on some day. Self-righteous, we're better. I mean, how many times did... Were people mad at him for eating with sinners, right? Because why? We don't want to get dirty by being next to them. And so we see the way of Jesus is one of loving and laying our life down for others. It's seeing people's hurt and brokenness and not going, well, I can't do that today. I mean, it's, it's the day of rest, but it's a day, it is a life of entering into that with people. Let's read the next story. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Once again, it's like you pick the seat, and they're like, sorry, you need to get up because... That was designed for somebody else. It's kind of humiliating. And he's saying, it's not the way of the kingdom. We don't want to lift ourselves up. 
But what does he say? But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The second thing that happens um, with religion and self here we see is you need to be exalted by man. Don't we see that? Don't we love to be lifted up? To be noticed? We need other people to tell us how great we are? I mean, I know maybe not everybody in here, but some of you are like me and not on social media, but isn't that all social media is in our culture? I need to be lifted up. I need to be liked. I need to be commented on. I need other people's approval. That's the journey of our culture right now, is we need to be exalted by men, or, or, or we take the promotion, yet it costs our family everything, or, or um, whatever it may be. Maybe we make decisions that we wouldn't usually make because there's a certain crowd around that we feel like we need to be liked by, we need to be lifted up by. And, and I think the journey of this religious, self-righteous, I bring my own identity to myself, it leads to us wanting to be exalted by men. We, don't, we can't take the place of humility. But what did Jesus do the night before he was arrested? He humbled himself. <laughs> he wrapped a towel around himself. And I, I heard an illustration recently of a guy who had been in Africa, and he said, you got to understand, like, it's more than just, like, your feet are dirty because you walked around in shoes all day, or even in our culture, walking around in sandals. It's different because when you're walking, the roads in Africa, they're made of dirt. But guess what else uses those roads? All the animals, and what do they do? I mean, they use the bathroom all over the roads, and so as the rains come and people walk on it, you're just crushing all this down. So when you walk in your sandals and that, like, you just get crusted. It's nasty, all right? I mean, think about it. I mean, you ever been walking in your yard and you step on some dog mess and you got shoes on and you're like, oh, God. Imagine if it's just like you're just walking in that all day with no shoes on. And then what did Jesus do? He humbled himself and he went down and he washed their feet. He took the place of lowness because he knew what was going to ultimately happen was what? That God was going to lift him up and he could lay down his life. And that was an act of what? Humbling himself. But religion and self-righteous leads to this blind elitism where we need to always be exalted by other people. We need the place of honor because it makes us feel significant. Let's read the next story. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner, I also want you to think about this. This is amazing. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Don't invite any of your friends, your neighbors, family, anybody, because they, they can pay you back. It's like, what is Jesus talking about? I mean, you got to realize, if you were there and he's talking like this, you'd be like, well, my parents taught me totally different growing up. What's to love your neighbors, love your friends, have them over. I'm from the South, hospitality, right? He's like, don't invite them, because they can repay you. And you're like, what? He says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, his, this is the real religious guy. He said, uh, 
he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. You know, it's like trying to break the awkwardness. Uh, <laughs> but he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. And please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. That'd be a terrible party, wouldn't it? Preparing a feast and nobody's coming. Your friends, everybody else is too busy. Wait, that sounds like our culture sometimes. Sorry. Uh, But... uh, So he came, and the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. The third thing that our religious self-righteous can do is that we need to be repaid on earth. We give to get. We don't have pure motive. We do for others so that we can get in return. And Jesus flips it all upside down. And he says, my kingdom and my way is not that way. So what is the way of Jesus? Second point is the way of Jesus, I believe, leads to humble seeing. I have an office downtown Bellingham, and um, I get to walk the streets. And yesterday I was down there um, for a few hours actually working on this. Um, And when I was getting out of my car, there was this homeless guy on a bicycle coming by me. And I'm trying to learn to make a practice of... You know, sometimes we feel like, well, we can't do anything. Like, so we, we, if we can't rescue them, we don't do anything, right? Um, and, but I just try to notice them. I just want to see people, right? Don't you think people just want to be seen? Especially if you're homeless and your life is a mess. And so I get out of my car, and this guy's coming by, and I, I look at him, and he's on his bike, and I, I say, good morning. And he's, like, right beside me. He's on his bike, so he's going this way, and He's like, he kind of looks at me funny, like, good morning. And then he keeps looking behind, like, did somebody really just speak to me? And I was thinking, like, man, like the way of Jesus isn't that we need to go rescue everybody. But it may be humbly seeing somebody on the journey. And so we see that in the first one. So the first point under the way of Jesus leads to humble seeing. In the as we look at the very first story about him healing the person on the Sabbath, I want you humbly, this is the first point under this, humbly serve the hurting and those in need of the healing of Jesus. I'll say it one more time. The way of Jesus is humbly serving the hurting and those in need of the healing of Jesus. We just serve them. Look, it is not our job to convert anybody. It isn't. It's not our job to make them believe what we believe. Last time I checked, he does that. Go read Romans. None choose him, no, not one. The Spirit of God is the one who draws. So I'll tell you, sometimes for me that frees me up. He's calling his church. Who's going to build his church? Not you and me. He does. But what has he called us to do? Humbly serve the hurting and those in need of the healing of Jesus. 
You ever notice, who did he talk theology with? The religious. And he was usually asking them questions because they were asking him questions. And he was a smart aleck. No, this is no offense to him. But he was. He asked them questions. He just continued to make them think. He never gave them an answer, hardly ever. But when he had the woman who had been caught in adultery standing bef- laid out before him, getting ready to be stoned, not like for fun, but just hit her with a few rocks, but to death. And he says, you without sin cast the first stone. And all of a sudden, these guys who were so self-righteous, who would believe they were so good, I mean, rocks start falling everywhere. It was like, it was like music almost, right? <laughs> right? Because, whoa. Did he say, ma'am? Do you believe that I am the Son of God? And, and, and do you have all your steps in line? Absolutely not. What did he do? He said, go and sin no more. You're forgiven. And I was like, what? I mean, he didn't have to have some track and some build. No, what did he do? He just met her in her brokenness. And I guarantee you, because she had received a love unlike any she had ever received, I guarantee you she was one of the women that was with the 12 that helped with the funding of the ministry. And Luke, he talks about that. As they were going, there was, you had the 12 and then you had some women who had been released from demons and they brought what they had to help care for each other. What? You mean she, she didn't have to go to a 101 class or? No, she met Jesus and she was never the same. I think his, the way for us in this, we see what? He meets a man that had dropsy or edema. His whole life was turned upside down by this. And he'd been coming to the temple and he'd been ignored because he was unclean. And Jesus saw the unclean and cared about him. I think the way of Jesus is to humbly serve the hurting, enter into their suffering. And I'll tell you, because I got getting to experience it right now in my life, it will radically transform your heart. Your heart as you do it. Friday, I'm in the emergency room with a dear friend of mine who's been battling terminal cancer. Uh, he had to go to the ER because he has fluid on his heart and his lungs and his cancer spreading. And I've got to walk with him. His wife died less than two years ago. And then he found out while she was dying this in the early 60s, I'm in the hospital with him Friday, getting to journey with him. Yesterday, I got to take my family to go and uh, be a part of this journey and get to hear my three-year-old invest into his life. And uh, I get to invest in the lives of his two kids. Uh, And then I get to go last night and sit in a hospital from about 6 to about midnight last night and get to just be with him and even some other people. friends and believers and we get to talk about the Lord and get to cry together, we get to laugh together and then this morning I get to go uh, and he needed something, I get to go serve him and I'll tell you, I don't tell you that to anything give me credit but I'll tell you my life has been radically transformed by being in his life for the last two years walking with him as a young, I mean I'm 33 years old, he's 61 and I get to walk with him through the death of his wife and through losing his own life and He would tell you how much he appreciates me in his life and my family because my wife has cooked meals and my my daughter constantly makes pictures for him. But I'll tell you the journey for us, the beauty has been 
just getting to be with him. Begin to learn from him. Life takes on a different perspective when your wife's gone and you're dying. And so sometimes the beauty of the upside-down kingdom is as you do what he calls you to do, he fills your life to overflowing in the midst of it. But I'll tell you, you've got to be willing to go against the grain sometimes, and you've got to be willing to get dirty. You've got to be willing to have people mess with your lives in order to experience that. That is the way of Jesus. We humbly see others and we enter it, not to rescue, not to have the perfect word, not to take away their pain. But what did Job's friends do with him? They just sat with him. Correct me if I'm wrong, but seven days. How many of you have ever been quiet for seven days, even the introverts in here? (laughs) Could you imagine, I mean, in our culture where we want to fix everybody and everything, just like pulling up a seat? His suffering was so great, I just sat. What would you give it, 15 minutes, 30, hour? Would you sit seven days and just be with? See, the beauty of this call is it's not burdensome because he's not asking you to do anything but be present and let his spirit do the work. But we, as his people, must bear our cross. We must die, and we must lay down everything to follow him so that we can be available in those moments. We can count ourselves last. Second story, you go to the party, and you want the best seat. And he says, choose the the lesser seat, because why? Because when you're invited, you want to go sit in the lowest place, it says in verse 10. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Doesn't that feel good? You ever been in that situation where, like, um, obviously my world is sports a lot. And, um, but you go to a game and you, you feel like you've got to sit up in the top, but you've got a friend down low. And, like, like, you know they're down there. And you don't want to be like, hey, man, can I come sit with you? But, you, but what if they're like, hey, i got an extra seat. You want to come sit? It's fun. Or if you've been at something, like, hey, I want you to come join me at my table. Whatever it is, like, there's a difference than when you're, like, trying to force yourself into that. And what is he telling us? That if we want to exalt ourselves, if we want to lift ourselves up, you're going to be humbled. Anybody ever experienced that? Am I the only one? Pride comes before the what? The fall, right? Ever, ever had that? You ever wanted to lift yourself up and God let you come crush, crashing down? Anybody ever took the promotion? because you wanted to be exalted and it was the worst thing you ever did? You ever made some decisions? I thank God that he is the, a God who <laughs> will discipline us, not in a negative way, teach us um, the things we would never ask to be taught because he wants us to be people that we never thought we could be. And so what is the way of Jesus in this story is that we humbly take the lowest place knowing where our exaltation will come from. There is going to be a reward. But we know where our exaltation comes from. It comes from Jesus. He will lift us up. I mean, he's made you an heir and a co-heir with Christ. He seated you in the heavenly places. He's given you everything that pertains to godliness. 
But yet I feel like because of our lack of dying and our constant striving, we fail to experience the depth of what it means to be exalted by him and by him alone. So what we can do, we can lay down. We don't have to count our life as anything. We count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. That's what Paul said. Last story. Imagine you're having a feast and he tells you to invite who? The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And that will make you blessed. What is he teaching us here? Is that we love to hang out with those who have their lives together, who don't really infringe on us. And what is he telling us? My people need to be a people. That it is a consistent and common practice in their life to invite the broken, the hurting, and the poor into our lives and to share with them the bounty that is Jesus. Let that resonate. Because ultimately the story goes on, and in 15, um, he says, he tells, you know, what the guy says, you know, blessed is everyone who eats of the kingdom of God. And he says, this is the story of Jesus right here. But he said um, to him, a man once gave a great banquet, invited many, God the Father. And at the time uh, for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. The kingdom of God is near. Who said that? Jesus. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Wasn't everybody filled with excuses on why they couldn't follow him? God was throwing a great banquet, inviting the nations, starting with his own people, the Israelites, the Jews, to himself. But there was all the excuses on why they couldn't do it. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And then the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. The last point is God would have us, the way as we follow Jesus, the way of Jesus is to humbly invite the poor, crippled, lame, and blind or the outcast to feast with us former outcast, and ultimately Jesus, knowing our reward is great in heaven. I think there is great danger amongst the church forgetting what God's called us from, which doesn't allow us to engage people where they are. And I think the way of Jesus is to humbly invite the least of these. What is pure religion? The orphan and the widow. If you read it, it's everywhere. It is everywhere. And yet I believe that sometimes 
because of the lack of safety, the lack of comfortability, and the lack of time we have failed to humbly see. And my encouragement is, one, that we would be deeply in awe of Jesus, personally. It's got to start there. You can't leave on, yeah, we need to start doing all this. Like, really, if you're not doing it? And my wife and I have been having conversations, is what does that look like in our lives today? I've done inner city stuff all over the country and um, engaged that in my life before, but right now I was going, like, what does that look like in my life today? To humbly invite the hurting, to humbly serve them, to engage the poor and the broken that we usually want to pass by and not really be bothered by. And we see that in Matthew 25, right? He says, uh, I'll just go there really quick and uh, just to give you a picture and we'll be wrapping up. Matthew 25, um, verse 31, the final judgment. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why did he do this? This is what he says. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, like, isn't it cool? Like, when you follow Jesus and you're so compelled by him, they didn't even know they were doing this, okay? You catch that? Like, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, oh. Yeah, I know we did that. Like, we, we did it every Tuesday. We did it every Thursday. Like, they're like, what? He's, they said, uh, um, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a, you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it unto me. And then obviously he goes on to the other side and um, he tells them that when he's, the others saw, they did nothing. So what's the journey for us? Well, what did Matthew 6, 9 through 13, when they asked the Lord to teach him how to pray, what did he say? Hallowed be your name. So it started with worship. But then he said something in there. Your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You, my friends, my brothers and my sisters, you and I are the means of his desire being fulfilled, that, his, that on earth it would be as it is in heaven. He wants to bring a taste of heaven to the earth, and how do we do that? I think we do it by the way of Jesus, humbly seeing the hurting. Would our churches be filled with the hurting. They are going through a big transition, have been for a while. What if this place was known as a place for the hurting, the poor and the broken to come and to get water? Not like necessarily just bottles of water, but Jesus is what? The living water. What if they could taste and see that God is good in this place? What if you're okay getting a little dirty and your seat's not being as comfortable and and what if your homes were filled with lunches and dinners with people that 
a year ago you'd never dreamed would be in your house? What if this corner in Ferndale would be a lighthouse? Man, I love hearing that y'all are going into the schools, man. Praise God for that. Keep doing it. Because I think we've isolated ourselves in our culture, and we've been known for what we're against and what we're for. There's a lot of major moral stuff, but our country has never been a Christian nation. It's had some morals at times, but what was going on behind the surface? Let's just be honest about it. How did we even start? God didn't come to build a country. He came to build a kingdom, and he asked us to be a part of it. And it is a kingdom that invites everyone. Doesn't matter their color. Doesn't matter their religion. It doesn't matter their sex. It doesn't matter their socioeconomic. It doesn't matter their education level. God forgive us that we have made that criteria. But he has called us to be a people that have humbly received a love like no other. And he's called us to go in love out of the overflow of that. So how does his, king, his kingdom come on earth? When a people that are called by his name are so captivated by Jesus and transformed by his spirit, when a people bear their cross and renounce everything because of that, and when a people that long for the marriage supper of the lamb, where we're going to get to all feast with him, all nations, we're going to come together, and that's when he said, I will not partake of this again until what? On that day. That's the day that all nations, all tongues, all tribes of all times will come together and will feast together in the name of Jesus. We will feast with him for all eternity. He will humbly serve and he will allow us to be a part of the finest of things. How does it happen? It's when we, those people that long for that day, better is one day in your courts, we long for that day to be with him. When we follow Jesus out to the streets, the lanes, the cities, the highways and the hedges to compel the people found there to come to the feast that is Jesus. Until that day, would we, his bride, be found awake, humbly seeing and serving the world through the eyes and hands of Jesus.